Albo visits flood areas, New South Wales industrial action, COVID getting worse, and the good news is about maritime parks in the United States. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host of The Week on Wednesday podcast, Ben Davison, and joining me from the heavily rained-in Harbour City is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracies, and Guardian columnist and the love of my life, Van Badham. How are you, Van? Oh, well, I'm missing you terribly, and I've got to say to everybody who knows I've been recovering from coronavirus like Ben, catching a flight was a mistake. A mistake. A mistake. Obviously, I've got to care for my mother, so I am here. But even though, obviously, I'm coronavirus negative, the impact on my body has been shocking and I feel terrible. And we will talk about COVID uh, a little bit in this episode because um, anyone who's been paying attention will know that the situation with COVID is getting worse, not just for Van and I on a personal level, but of course for many people around the country. But I do want to take a moment just to acknowledge that it is NADOC week this week uh, and that wherever we are doing the week on Wednesday, whether we are at our home or at Van's home or on the road somewhere, we are always uh, doing the week on Wednesday on Aboriginal land, land that was stolen and never ceded. Uh, It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And that, of course, Van and I, always uh, at the forefront of our minds is respect for elders past, present and those who are emerging. And of course, any uh, Aboriginal uh, uh, people who are listening to the podcast, um, happy NADOC week. We hope that uh, it is a week uh, full of good times, good times and uh, important, uh, important activities. Van, changing gear a little bit, Albo is back in the country. There was some criticism earlier in the week uh, from certain quarters, particularly the Murdoch press, but also from the federal liberals about him being overseas and some false equivalency going on, wasn't there? Yeah, so uh, a couple of days ago, the usual suspects in the right-wing media started to bang the drum about Albo insisting that he had gone missing. And it was particularly interesting to watch this as the criticism of Albo. Um, I wrote a piece for The Guardian uh, some time ago about how there was a sort of profound change in Albo after he had his car accident last year that he had like a a close call with death when he was still leader of the opposition. And he came out of that experience just with this new momentum that, you know, it's great to be the leader of the Labor Party, but it is better to be prime minister. And that kind of mindset was very evident in the wake of that accident and that Albo really threw himself into the job and obviously successfully as he is now Prime Minister of the country. And I think everybody's been kind of amazed, even your habitual elbow watchers, at the level of intensity of his performance so far. Like he just hasn't stopped. And, of course, infamously he was on a plane to a quad meeting in Japan literally within a few hours of becoming Prime Minister. There was that moment with Joe Biden who was like, you know, I'd forgive you if you fell asleep. I understand you've had quite the big few days. And obviously it's customary for a new Prime Minister to have international meetings to, you know, get the temperature of their role in the international community and for other world leaders to get to know them, the person they'll be dealing with. And obviously with crises like the Solomon Solomon Islands deal with China, you know, there's been quite an, an aggressive reclamation of foreign policies and Australian priority since the Labor government were elected. And it was sort of weird because it has been so visible, like, 
Albanese has been to every state in the country since the election. He's been very, you know, very visibly in Queensland, very visibly in Western Australia. You know, he was in SA. Like it's it's all sort of happening. And the Liberals decided to run this Where's Albo line. And it obviously, you know, they kicked it off on Sky and Paul Murray was, oh, where is Albo? What's Albo doing? You know, Albo should be doing other stuff. And there were there were like a few hours. He had been at um, a meeting, an international meeting in Spain, right? And with other world leaders, you know, obviously quite visibly, and some wonderful photos of Albanese hugging Emmanuel Macron and saying that you know our relationship with France is back after the disaster of the Morrison government lying to the French and yeah. undercutting the agreement on the French supply of submarines and signing the Orcas Treaty and all those things and, you know, these lovely photos of Albo and his partner hanging out with uh, the Macrons and everybody having a laugh and it's the kind of diplomatic imagery that goes well. Obviously, Albanese has spent time with Jacinda Ardern, yada, yada, yada. But the the right here were running this Where's Elbow line and, of course, they deployed their online myrmidons to push this whole, well, where is he? What's Elbow doing? This is outrageous. The Labor Party criticised Scott Morrison for going on holiday and Sydney's underwater and what's going on? And, of course, the rains in Sydney started while Albanese was in Spain and during this period of media blackout with the Prime Minister, um, that's when the rains got significantly worse. And so they were trying to. I, he I've was in been, Ukraine. You mean he? He was in Ukraine. Well, this you're ruining my story, Ben. Oh, sorry. You're totally giving away the punchline because this is the thing. Like he was incommunicado, and in this incommunicado space, the um, the conservatives were running this whole "Where's Albo?" thing. Angus Taylor, who's not really the person who you wheel out if you, you know, want people to be credulous of a word that your party says, they were really heavily invested in this. And, of course, it did turn out that the reason why Albanese had been incommunicado was that he hadn't gone on holiday. He wasn't infamously, as Scott Morrison did, doing a bit of genealogical research about about his family in England, and he wasn't, as Morrison did, off in Hawaii sipping Mai Tais by the beach while Australia was on fire. He was, in fact, in an armoured train heading towards Kiev to meet Zelensky, who is our ally, and to to make a commitment about Australia's support of uh, Ukraine in the Ukraine-Russia war. And it was, I mean, it was kind of extraordinary. I, I can't remember a time when the right have so grossly miscalculated their tactics and this was the thing like in this whole where's elbow you know like Mm. line that they had taken the prime minister was doing something incredibly dangerous the reason why he was incommunicado was so um, the russians wouldn't be able to track him with a mobile phone signal and take out the train he was traveling on like the security around visits to let us just underline this again a war zone are fairly intense. Like yeah. it's quite brave and full on for these world leaders to go to support Zelensky in Kiev. There are still missiles raining down on that city. There was a horrific Russian attack on a shopping centre in Kiev the other day. Obviously there's an active theatre of war in the Donbass. It is a brutal, brutal conflict that has taken thousands of lives. And the things that Albanese were doing was doing there was quite Extraordinary. He became the first Australian Prime Minister to visit Ukraine and uh, affirmed our alliance with that country, which is extremely important because it is one of the most easternmost democracies in Europe. They are fighting a war against an autocrat and an expansionist imperialist project to, I can't understate this enough, conquer through military force and violence parts of democratic Europe, which is, by the way, everybody, 
unambiguously bad. Um, Ukraine is one of the the biggest grain suppliers in the world. One of the reasons why inflation is a problem everywhere is because that war in Ukraine is holding up the world grain supply with vast economic effects. Mm, it mm. is a fundamentally good thing for Australia to be part of an active network of democratic alliances. This is really important. And it, Albanese pledged $100 million in various forms of support and aid to Ukraine, more Bushmasters, which are those special transports that Australia make that are yeah. sort of all-weather condition sort of – Armoured vehicles, yeah. Armoured vehicles. You know more about this than I do. This is I, – I like the strategy and the tactics, bends all up on the arsenal. And that – and Albanese went to like Irpin and Bushar, which are – places where the Russians committed war crimes, extremely solemn diplomatic occasions, went there to bear witness to the massacre and brutality that had taken place against Ukrainian citizens. Like this is high-level Australia on the international stage stuff, you know, and Zelensky was, you know, met Albanese with due ceremony and a lot of gratitude and this was what the Prime Minister had been doing while everybody was whinging Wes Albo on Sky in an actual war zone. So it was a bit of an own goal from the Liberal Party. And but there's a, a further detail uh, from that as well, is there not, Ben? Oh, and by the way, Albanese took an emergency meeting about the flood situation in New South Wales while he was there and uh, approved the release of the ADF to help in flood relief, approved a whole bunch of emergency mitigation strategies. Murray Watt, who's the senator from Queensland, who's the Minister for Emergency Responses, has been very public and visible about getting things moving. We're going to talk about that in a bit more detail. And, of course, Albany's committed to coming back to Australia as soon as possible with a schedule of appearances to visit um, flood-affected areas. Yeah. So even today he's been in flood-affected areas. Uh, he's doing visits with the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, who, you know, and I will, we will criticise Dominic Perrottet later in the episode, but to his credit, he actually praised uh, Anthony Albanese and the Labor Commonwealth Government and said that the response had been better than the previous government's response to earlier flood uh, situations in New South Wales. And of course, even as late as uh, this morning, Wednesday, the 6th of July, you had members of the Liberal Opposition front bench going on Radio National, criticizing Anthony Albanese for his uh, work on the international stage on behalf of Australia and on behalf of democracy more broadly, uh, and saying that basically trying to say that it was a holiday. Uh, and ironically, Karen Andrews, who was on Radio National this morning trying to push this line, trying to push this barrow, uh, was asked the question, well, isn't Peter Dutton on holiday? And if, if Peter Dutton's on holiday while these floods are happening, yet Anthony Albanese has said he hasn't had a day off in a long time, his schedule does look quite crowded when you look back on it, um, isn't it a bit hypocritical? And Karen Andrews, who is a member of the Liberal front bench opposition, did not know that Peter Dutton was on holiday. Now, Peter Dutton did issue a media statement on Sunday saying he would be on holiday. Uh, it sort of went unremarked because I think most of the nation is quite pleased to have Peter Dutton on holiday and would welcome him taking an extended holiday, uh, perhaps a permanent holiday from public life. But they have pushed this barrow while, in actual fact, the Labor Commonwealth Government has done things like made childcare free, extended an additional $1,000 per adult uh, in emergency relief, an additional $400 per child in emergency relief. As you say, Murray Watt has been meeting with the relevant emergency relief uh, agencies. The Victorian State Government has sent SES uh, and emergency relief crews to New South Wales as well. So. You know, there is bipartisan activity going on here in Australia uh, while the Commonwealth coordinates that, yet somehow or another the Liberals and their, their, their propagandists on Sky have tried to spread this idea that somehow or another Elbow has been doing the wrong thing. Quite frankly, it's absolutely the right thing for a new Prime Minister to reaffirm 
our alliances internationally, to reaffirm our democratic commitments to other democracies. And also, can we just point out that some of the uh, some of the activity that Albo has been doing is not only trying to repair the damage of the Morrison government, but is actually also about improving Australia's access to trade partners in the EU. And we've talked about that before on, on the uh, weekend wrap. We talked about the EU being prepared to have a new trade agreement with Australia, a proper, transparent, uh, inclusive trade agreement. And also, uh, it, it's also been about making sure that we have good democratic alliances that extend beyond our immediate neighbours. So the discussion, I believe the discussion in Spain was around NATO and NATO's view on China and any territorial expansion by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, particularly as it regards to Taiwan, but more broadly as it regards to the Pacific uh, as well. So these are important um, issues of national security and national prosperity, as well as a broader commitment to democracy that Alba has been putting uh, putting his best foot forward on. So you know th- these sky numpties just want to criticise Labor is basically what it boils down to. But it's bizarre what they're trying to criticise Labor for. Tr- I mean, I was writing fairly snarky Facebook posts about this. And it's like they're trying to turn Waikiki into a verb. They're yeah. trying to Waikiki elbow because the attack on Scott Morrison for let's just let's just go back there for one moment and remember the dark times, abandoning Australia to go on a fancy holiday to Hawaii while Australia was literally on fire. Like the, I think the in the in the Australian right are so fractured because of their electoral defeat. They're not. They're they're sort of grabbing at the shadow, not the substance. Yeah. They seem to think that oh, that was a really successful attack line. Um, you know that Labor and the left used against Scott Morrison when he went to Hawaii. So we'll attack. Albanese for being overseas while it's flooding. Yeah, yeah, that will work. That'll get him. We know that that's a tactic that works. Failing to comprehend that Scott Morrison went to Hawaii on a freaking holiday, yeah, on a holiday, and took happy snaps and totally abandoned this country and hadn't done the things you need to do to successfully run the emergency management of a fire crisis. I mean, let's remember the Morrison government didn't buy the planes, didn't invest in the managed burns, like all of those things. They yeah. just didn't do it. And the whole country was in this like state of total crisis and Morrison was on holiday. Albanese has not been on holiday. He has been rebuilding international alliances at a you know, peak event in Spain. You know, Did you know Australia is the single largest contributor to the Ukraine war effort of any of Ukraine's allies outside of the NATO alliance, which is impressive and good and exactly what Australia should be doing. We should be backing in our allies. We should be backing in other democracies. Democracies have to stick together because, you know, authoritarians overwhelmingly have imperialist and expansionist aims, which, by the way, are not in our interest as a people to countenance. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. and this is the thing, like, and and Albany's going to let's just let's just say it one more time, a war zone is a bit different to Scott Morrison going to Hawaii, and this stumbling around, you know, the fact that Dutton himself is on holiday, Karen Andrews didn't know, they've wheeled out Angus Taylor of all people yeah. to push this line. It is just nonsense. Apparently, Susan Lay is the acting leader of the opposition at the moment, which I understand. I mean, she is the deputy, but it's hardly, I mean, she's not really making a mark, our Susan, is she? No, and we should remember too, Susan Lay only retained pre-selection because Scott Morrison intervened to save her pre-selection as the Four Corners episode earlier in the week made very clear. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see whether being deputy leader is enough to keep her in her seat at the next election. Uh, and certainly based on current performance, you'd have to say there's a, certainly a lack of coordination coming out of the acting 
opposition leader's office. Uh, and and it's interesting that Angus Taylor is ruled out, Van, because from memory, Angus Taylor has some some vested interests in in water. Um, I, I'm I'm not entirely across the details. We haven't done a deep dive, uh, excuse the pun, uh, on this for a while. But from memory, Angus Taylor has certain flood water rights that he sold or on sells. There's something about Angus Taylor and water that rings a bell for me. So he does seem like an odd choice to wheel out. Maybe I'll do a bit more digging on that for the next episode or, or uh, of the week on Wednesday. Because I'm, I'm sure my friends who are water engineers, maybe we could do a bit of water tunneling. <laughs> yeah, hey. Look, uh, I do want to talk about uh, what else is going on in New South Wales. Uh, this this episode, there's quite a lot coming out of New South Wales, and I appreciate for those in other states, there are things here that do impact how uh, workers' rights, uh, how uh, emergencies are managed, uh, that will impact other states as well. So bear with us if you're not from New South Wales this week. But there are some classic examples. Obviously, we've just talked about floods, emergency management, and the political ramifications of that. But in industrial relations, New South Wales at the moment is had three weeks in a row of industrial action. First uh, in health, in the health sector, then with uh, teachers, both uh, in the public and the independent and slash Catholic sector. And now uh, with rail workers, and Van, this is this is a really interesting time because obviously we always say to people um, join your union, but certainly in New South Wales at the moment, and really around the country, what New South Wales is doing is a is a key reason to join your union. The, the Perrottet government is trying to up the level of fines on on unions and workers for taking industrial action. They've recently fined the the Australian Education Union, the Teachers Federation in New South Wales, $30,000 for its industrial action. They're proposing fines of $55,000 a day uh, for the first day and $27,500 for each day after that. And, of course, some of these industrial actions are – Yes, some of them are about wages. Some of them are about workload. Some of them are about safety. Today's industrial action uh, in the rail network is about the fact that the trains that the Liberal government has imported from Korea are not safe. And in fact, the Liberal government has verbally acknowledged that they need to spend over $200 million to make them safe. And what the rail, tram and bus union is saying we want you to put in writing that you will do this, that you will make them safe, uh, and that that needs to be done. And it needs to be done not at the expense of workers' conditions, wages, or safety. Uh, and the government is refusing to do this. I mean, if ever there's a time to join your union, it's when a government is trying to fine you for trying to be safe at work. So go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's where you can join. But Van, you're in Sydney. Um, appreciate that this is probably inconvenient to some people, but there is a there is an ongoing problem with the Perrottet government and its industrial relations, isn't there? Oh, yeah. It, you know, the, it, to quote one of my favourite lines from Raiders of the Lost Ark, which, as you know, is one of my favourite movies, you know, you would use a bulldozer to find a China cup, I think is the Dominic, Dominic Perrottet attitude towards, you know, workplace negotiation. It is ridiculous what's going on in New South Wales. Like this bullheaded, like anti-union ideological crusade that the Liberals in this state are on, and they really are. We had unprecedented action the other day where the AEU, the Australian Education Union, and its New South Wales manifestation, the Teachers Federation, which is the state school teachers union, like did a joint action with the IEU, which is the Independent Education Union, which represents teachers in the in the non-government and private education system, marched together because everything in this state is in such an absolute public services disaster. It is so interesting what's going on here. Like 
the liberals are just not learning. It is constantly these sort of bullheaded attacks on public service workplaces. And of course, the response has been unprecedented modern levels of industrial action. Like I do not remember this level of industrial activity since the 1980s really in this state, but you've had like these constant problems with public transport, these constant problems with education, constant problems in the health system and the government under Perrottet here are doing literally nothing to resolve them. They're not negotiating. They're not, I think fundamentally the problem is they're not respecting that unions represent the people who have to do the work. Yeah. It's sort of the fundamental principle of unionism really. And it's interesting particularly around the issue with the train situation is that you have workers saying these trains are unsafe. We cannot protect the users of this system or ourselves if we work with unsafe equipment that you bought for some unfathomable reason. And there have been these constant problems in the state of New South Wales, this almost willfulness to not buy things here, not buy Australian-made ferries, not buy Australian-made trains, not buy Australian-made trams. And you've had this situation that all of these critical parts of public transport infrastructure. I think if you live outside of Sydney, it's difficult to imagine how absolutely crucial public transport is in this city. Like Sydney is a city of 5 million people where the, the uh, and more people live in Western city, Western Sydney than live in most other Australian cities. And that's just half of Sydney. Yeah. And the, the public transport demands on commuters are really high. Like without this massive public transport system, this city would just completely collapse. One of the problems with all of the rain in Sydney is that, you know, the ability to commute gets impaired by all of these rain problems and that causes, you know, massive, massive infrastructure problems here. And yet despite the dependence on public transport, you have the Liberal Party who clearly don't use it themselves allowing the system to fall into total and utter disrepair and to buy this this substandard, ill-equipped um, pieces of infrastructure and transport actual vehicles and a union going, we actually have to make this work and if you do not back us in, we can't. Like you have to deal with the safety issues here. It is really shocking and it's something that's always just done my head in about Sydney, you know, and the way that this city is so it's so socially classed like yeah. like no other australian city in my experience and i've lived in a couple of them like there are parts of sydney where you would just have no idea that that working class people existed you know and there are parts of sydney where it's almost it's almost impossible to imagine the unbelievable luxury that people in the eastern suburbs of Sydney live in. Like the way that the city is designed, it's quite possible to just not see the massive wealth disparities here. And the idea that a, a Liberal government backed in by rich people can just abrogate any kind of connection to public transport is a real, it's a horrific symptom of that problem. I I remember when the pandemic was starting, there was talk about uh, one eastern suburb that's connected to the rest of Australia, basically by one bridge being, being shut off, not because there was COVID in that suburb, but because they wanted to avoid COVID getting into that suburb. And I thought that that was remarkable that there would be this enclave of such wealthy people in such a major city that was only serviced by one bridge. But of course, they all, you know, drive luxury cars or have drivers drive them in luxury cars. They don't need, you know, rail bridges. They don't use walking tracks to go into the rest of the city. It's all very much an, an enclave. And, and Van, it really does speak to two things in my mind. One is that the Liberal government's consistently underinvest in the services that 
real people need, public transport, health, education, uh, and that they do that to the point of breaking the system and that working people are effectively made to prop up the system. You see it with teachers taking on larger and larger workloads, working longer and longer hours. In the healthcare system, we've seen some incredible scenes, uh, huge overtime uh, being done, people coming back from retirement to fill gaps, uh, and obviously in public transport, people prepared to, you know, jerry-rig uh, broken machinery to try and keep people safe. Th- these are unbelievable demands put on working people by by governments that really are not serving their purpose. Oh, look, it is it is shocking here. Another big revelation this week in New South Wales was the level of um, overfunding of what I would describe as luxury private schools, not even elite private schools, like next-level luxury schools. Barker College, which is in Hornsby, which is where I lived as a kid when my dad was running the RSL, um, Barker College is one of those is one of those schools. It has a helipad, and right. it looks like something out of Tom Brown's school days, or you know, like the boys of St Poshos. I mean, it is completely ridiculous. It is completely ridiculous. It was overfunded to the tune of two point five million dollars, and this is a school where I believe it's like forty thousand dollars a year to send your kid there. Like unfathomable amounts of money. And yeah. a number of these unbelievably, uh, like, uh, overcapitalized institutions are being funded by the taxpayer um, and overfunded by them. At the same time, in state schools, you have infrastructure falling apart. There have been scandals with toilets not being repaired and air conditioning not working. And, you know, obviously there's a massive teacher shortage. Teachers are underpaid for the amount of work they're expected to do in a state system that educates the overwhelming majority, the overwhelming majority of people in this state. And yet Barker College... It's receiving millions of dollars of taxpayers' money. And it's just this fundamental disconnect. And it's really interesting to see, like, and when I say luxury private schools, I'm not talking about, you know, the kids from St. Struglow's Catholic School for the Grubby. You know what I mean? Like that's we're far beyond that in, in this state. And it's just this just fundamental class and and social disconnect about how other people live as if the ordinary person of Sydney who sends their kids to state school who has a job that they have to commute in by usually bus and train like where my mum lives for example it's bus and train to get into the city you know this constant underfunding of the critical services that make this place work and I can't Oh, it just, it actually does my head in. It's well, so frustrating. It, it certainly, um, it's certainly terrifying when you couple it with the idea that, you know, the, the Liberal government in New South Wales wants to up the fines on working people taking action. It, it is really an attempt to, to, come at, to come at working people from both angles, both to, to underservice them. And it's, again, I think it's interesting that at a Commonwealth level, you know, we saw how quickly uh, Jason Clare uh, and I think it was Amanda Rishworth um, and possibly Linda Burney came out um, and made sure that childcare places would be kept open and available and free to access for flood victims. You know, the the the, the change, the shift in mentality between a Labor and a Liberal government is huge, right? At a, at a national level now, we have a Labor government that understands the importance of services as social infrastructure to be a productive country. I saw Jim Chalmers on afternoon briefing yesterday. You know, he was asked the question about inflation, and and you know, does that mean that wages are a problem? And he just said, "Look, we don't have." a wages inflation problem in this country. There are lots of things that are causing inflation in this country, lack of supply, problems with supply chains, um, lack of critical infrastructure, a range of things that we need to do, but it's not about wages. And it's such a 
different approach when you have a Labor government that is focused on what actually makes the systems of society work, the systems of the economy work. That is good quality services, proper infrastructure, good supply chains versus liberal governments, which seem overwhelmingly to be focused on short-term profitability, uh, getting through to the next election cycle, how do we maintain power? Uh, and, and in New South Wales, you know, it's interesting that even with that attempt in that budget that they handed down a couple of weeks ago, you know, to reposition away from the Morrison era legacies around um, having a bad reputation on the treatment of women, on how they engage with families and childcare, uh, and what they're doing around uh, housing, the Perrottet government has been unable to shake uh, that legacy. And fundamentally, I think it actually boils down to these core issues, how you treat the workforce, how you invest in services, how you build infrastructure. You know, if, if you can't get that right, no one's going to believe that you've got the the commitment to those what I call next level issues about equality, about access, about opportunity. Like if you can't even make the trains run safely, let alone on time, can we really believe that Dominic Perrottet is going to empower women in the workplace? That just doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, not really. I just want to make an acknowledgement about how much more confident I feel about you know, the, the the attempt to remedy education disparities in this country by having a federal minister for education in Jason Clare who actually went to state school. I can't tell you how much better I feel and more confident I feel about the capacity of the new federal government to to deal with some of the infrastructure gaps in education by the fact that you have an education minister who actually knows what the state system is like because he is a product of it and I'm horrified that that is something I actually have to celebrate um, and has made such a point of acknowledging the input of his state school teachers on his education that led him on a journey to becoming federal education minister. Yeah. Like, and, and it's that kind of experience which is really important, which is why you and I are always encouraging people and you can see this, you know, just to go on a, a slight tangent, in in the United States at the moment, that place is just a political bin fire. It is horrific what is going on in the United States with the lack of gun regulation and an extremist right-wing Supreme Court and overtoning Roe versus Wade and all of those things. Like what is what what's pretty easy to identify is you know there's a gap between what the people want and what political representatives are doing. Now we have the great luxury in Australia because of compulsory voting. There are inherent checks and or as we call it universal enfranchisement. There are inherent checks and balances on what governments can do because you have to win the majority of the people, the mm, actual mm. majority, not just the majority of voters, but the people because we are all voters. But you and I want to encourage people to get politically involved. Like one of the reasons why we have this situation where you have people making decisions about educate, like the state education system, for example, with absolutely no familiarity of what that system is like, lived experience, would, would, like would be horrified at the thought of sending their children to school in a system that they themselves are responsible for, which disgusts yeah. me on every level, by the way. Like get involved in your union you know, get involved in the Labor Party, be part of the policy mechanism and bring your lived experiences to those fora. Like there are many, many different ways of participating. You know, not everything is like a, a meeting to mm. go to. There are like discussions and events and with your union in particular, you're making a commitment to there being democratic representation of what your life is like as a worker. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more, Van. You know, we we are involved in many different things, you and I, at a community level, at a, at a more institutional level, uh, and, you know, at a personal uh, level as well. You know, you, you, you're not a member of a political party for, for many reasons, uh, but you are active politically and people can 
do that. People can be active politically without being a member of a political party. I think sometimes people in Australia feel quite binary that there's a sort of, you know, there's a threshold. You're either politically active or you're not. Well, actually, it's it's much more of a spectrum. Um, and most forms of political activity, uh, you know, don't mean don't require you to immediately step into the public spotlight or lead a march of a thousand people or you know actually it can be as simple as having conversations sharing this podcast talking to other people in your workplace about you know what, what union does cover us are you a member of the union how do i join the union who is our delegate do we have a, who's our health and safety rep have we got a health and safety rep? What's what's our company's health and safety committee? Who's on it? These are simple conversations to start to have, and they are legally protected as well. I know sometimes people can feel, oh, it's a bit overwhelming. What if my job gets put at risk? You cannot be, and it is illegal for you to be fired or to be adversely affected or have action taken against you for involvement in those sorts of conversations and activities. It is protected. You are absolutely entitled to do that because of the work the unions have done to enshrine those protections in law. So, yeah, absolutely get involved. Um, And, of course, I do want to give a quick shout-out before we move on to our next big story uh, to Unions New South Wales. That's the peak body for unions in New South Wales, unsurprisingly, um, who is uh, raising money at the moment to fight off these big fines that Parate is trying to levy. Uh, Van and I have made a contribution. Um, if you do have some capacity, uh, I appreciate not everybody will be able to, uh, but if you do, I'm sure the workers of New South Wales would appreciate that. Uh, links are on uh, Twitter. And you can check that out, Unions New South Wales as well. Yeah, on that point, you know, you and I are lucky that we have the capacity to make a financial donation. If you don't have the capacity to make a financial donation, do you know what you can do? You can follow Unions New South Wales on Twitter and share their content. Absolutely. And promote the work of their members. And that costs you nothing to do if you're on Twitter anyway, maybe a little bit of your sanity if you're not heavy with a block button, which I recommend. Um, But... Those are the kind of things, spreading the word, leading a discussion, those are the the kind of things that make the difference in the community. And we've seen like Australian Australian media has not changed that much really. Mm. Um, over the years, but the Australian people have changed the way that they engage with media. You know, once upon a time in this country, you couldn't win an election without the support of the Murdoch papers. Well, Anthony Albanese has just proved that you can because there are enough people in the community having conversations, sharing, you know, content from independent media like us and our friends. And we recommend uh, podcasts like the Socially Democratic podcast that's run by our friend Stephen Donnelly, which is fantastic. These, you know, other resources which are out there. On the job as well. I just want to say on on the the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg, another podcast that we thoroughly recommend that talks to workers in their workplaces about what's going on in Australia. And it's those kind of channels that enable us as a community to have information resistance to the propaganda that comes out from the where's elbow crowd. Yeah, look, and and it's interesting too, right, because the, the next thing I want to talk about is, is COVID, um, and this is an issue uh, that hasn't gone away, right? Like it, it has never gone away. Uh, it, it runs hot and cold in the media. Uh, you know, I think – I think we've talked about COVID on of the 90, this is episode 95 of the week on Wednesday, uh, not including weekend wraps. And I think we've talked about COVID on all bar two. So over 90 episodes, we've had to talk about COVID. And I know we all are sick of it. We're sick of COVID. We don't want to have it, but we're increasingly getting it again. Uh, and it is getting worse. COVID is getting worse again. Uh, the variant is worse. It is more infectious. Uh, it is more, uh, resistant to, uh, to inoculations and it is having worse impacts on people. So we've gone a couple of weeks ago. I mentioned that we'd hit 4% of hospital beds in Australia being occupied by COVID patients again and that we were concerned about that. Now, as of yesterday, it's at 6%. 
Now, once it hits 15, that's an amber code in the Australian hospital system. And it's important to note that once again, New South Wales is much worse placed than most of Australia because of the 3,740 people currently in hospital with COVID in Australia, over 1,800 of them are in New South Wales. Now, that means that New South Wales is accounting for well over half the number of people with COVID in hospital. There are currently, uh, Michelle O'Neill, the president of the ACTU, tweeted this morning that there are over 300 deaths a week from COVID. We've tipped over 10,000. We talked about that on the weekend wrap. There are some predictions that say we'll have 15,000 deaths just this year from COVID. And certainly we're on track to meet that grim milestone. At the same time, and you know, look, I will be a little bit critical here of the Labor government because they are they have said that they will enact the Morrison era government decision to end the pandemic disaster relief payments, even though we know COVID is getting worse. The numbers are going up, hospitalizations are going up, deaths are going up, and the prediction is that will continue to get worse. Now Unions are running a campaign to say we need the the disaster relief payment to stay in place. And obviously, it also speaks to a broader systemic issue about access to paid sick leave, doesn't it, Van? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm critical of this as well. I think the um, pandemic support should be put back in place. Speaking from our own experience, like everybody who listens to this podcast knows that we have been quite ill. And unfortunately, I have been particularly ill, which doesn't seem fair, I've got to say. But I had to give up a job that would have, I mean, we talk about it on the show. You and I have portfolio careers. We subcontract. This is the world that we live in. I'm in the arts. And I had a job I was really looking forward to doing that was, you know, the kind of job paid at a level that keeps me alive for a few months so I can weather the vagaries in my income. And I was too sick to do it. And I had to say, look, I, I, I can't, I physically can't do it. And because of the way that this project was timetabled, you know, it's not like it could be put off. Mm. And, but the reality is like, even though I've taken quite a hit um, financially, I, I was too sick to do it. And I can't see any way out of these symptoms and the way I'm feeling now, unless I reduce my workload. Like I can't, you know, I will do this podcast and then I will probably nap for the rest of the day because the fatigue symptoms of the COVID I've got have been really, really brutal. And I'm very lucky that I have you and, you know, there are various structures in our life that enable me to do that. Even, you know, like let's hope I get a jo- <laughs> another job when I'm better. But other people who don't have the kind of intersectional supports that you and I have are in real trouble when this stuff happens, you know, and the the reality of coronavirus and my lived experience of it is that every time I think that I'm getting a bit better and I do something like get on a plane or do some, do some work, focus for a few hours, I pay a penalty. Like I'm just ruined for days afterwards. And this has been the experience of a lot of people with this disease the supports have got to be there for people, like state support has got to be there for people to manage the symptoms of this virus or it is going to become an ongoing problem. And, you you know, we're talking about it, how in Western Australia research is suggesting that these new COVID variants, you can be reinfected with COVID in what, like a couple of weeks after having Four, four weeks it. they're talking about, yeah. Yeah, so- four weeks. And... It really, it's a virus. If you haven't had it, it, you have to drop everything. The only thing you can do is stop and rest. You know, treat your symptoms, speak to your doctor, but you can't. You can't exist in the delusion that you can work from home or you have to rest. That's all you can do. Yeah, um, and look, we we were both triple vaxxed, and I have to say, I did try working from home, and um, I, I'm I'm hoping that the organisations who I helped uh, do their budget at the end of last financial year for this financial year 
Uh, we will double check and triple check those numbers because, frankly, you know that was done in a very feverish state, uh, and I paid a heavy price. I was in agony for days and absolutely wiped out. You know, the seven-day symptom, the seven-day isolation period is not necessarily aligned to the impact it will have on people. Um, appreciate that there are still some people who are only having mild symptoms and good for them, but increasingly we are seeing more severity in symptoms for people. Uh, and and they say, they say that uh, BA4 and BA5 are causing people to have more fatigue, joint pain, uh, more, inca- more incapacitation than previous Omicron strains. And we're only going to see more of it. The, the, it's, you know, Europe is having an outbreak again in summer. So, you know, when we started the pandemic, we had those beautiful windows we talked about, three, four-month windows. Uh, but now it seems to be just ongoing, rolling um, things. And so it's so important to wear masks, socially distance. I can't get over the people not wearing masks. On public transport in Victoria, it is mandatory to wear a mask and people don't do it. Um, frankly, I'm wearing a mask now whenever I'm in a public crowded place, I will be wearing a mask and I would encourage others to do the same. You know, Brad Hazard, who's the Liberal Health Minister in New South Wales, uh, is not someone who I have a great deal of respect for on most things, but even he has said People should be wearing masks. He won't go as far as mandating it because, of course, he's still a liberal. But, you know, people should be wearing masks. If you haven't had a third dose of vaccine, you're mad. Um, there's, he's arguing as a number of state health ministers, I believe uh, Queensland, Victoria and Western Australia are all saying that we should have uh, third and fourth doses made available. Uh, you know, we now have friends who are possibly getting a fifth dose of vaccine. Like COVID is here, it is part of our reality. Uh, And if we don't manage ourselves and the way we do things a bit better, it's it's already Australia's leading cause of death. Yeah. And look, my experience, and I've been tweeting this repeatedly, and your experience, the experience of people we love, Like as somebody who still has COVID symptoms, what, three and a half weeks later, I totally support mask mandates. I would not wish this on my worst enemy. You know, if I want to, if I want to punish my, my enemies, I'll say mean things about them on this podcast or on Twitter or in a column, you know, I, I would not visit this on anyone. It is just awful. And like my experience of COVID has made me meticulous about mask wearing as well. Like there is literally no way I would go into a shopping centre or a supermarket, let alone on public transport or a theatre or a plane or anything else, without being masked within an inch of my life now because I, you know, I don't want to get it again. I don't want to, I don't want to spread it like in any way. I don't, I just, like, I just, it's terrible, guys. It is bad. And the thing is, yes, I have had the illness and I'm not infectious now. And, yes, I've had the illness and might have 10 minutes of immunity. Um, So maybe I don't need, like, physically need to wear the mask. But I have been masking as a symbol that masking is important. Yeah. Actually, the public performance of masking is really quite important in terms of reminding everybody we come into contact with that this disease is around, it is serious, and it's deadly. And, you know, the people on the right can accuse me of mask theatre or whatever as much as they like. I don't care. I do not want anyone to die of COVID. And let's be really, I just don't. Let's be really clear about this too. 300 people a week dying of COVID at the moment. Now, that's a, that, that is a domestic flight, right? If, if a flight from Melbourne to Sydney crashed into the ground and everyone on board died once a week, there would be absolute, absolute outrage. Almost panic. Now, I'm not saying we need to panic. No not one at all. would fly. If the no equivalent of people were dying in an aircraft accident every week, no one would fly. Exactly right. Exactly right. Now, what we're saying is that 300 people are getting COVID 
because people are not wearing masks, not doing the things we know slow the spread of COVID. So these are not hard things to do. No one's saying you've got to wear an N95 gas mask and a full bio suit, but if you just wear a fabric or even a surgical mask when you are in crowded areas, if you don't hug one another and cough on one another, if you wash your hands, if you avoid talking closely into someone's face, these are all simple things we can do to help bring down what is a staggering death toll. 300 people a week, I mean, that is more than some states' entire year's road toll. It is phenomenal. If, if, it, if, if, this, if this were happening in any other part of our society, we would be demanding safeguards be put in place. When, this, when these sorts of numbers were happening on our roads because we didn't have seatbelts, we brought in seatbelt mandates. When they were happening because of drink driving, we brought in uh, drink driving laws. Like there are clear examples where we have taken action to reduce fatalities. Yeah, like smoking. smoking. You know? Lung cancer is no longer the leading cause of death for people ages 40 to 60 because of COVID <laughs> and because we have reduced smoking rates. Yeah, it was interesting. Somebody was saying this, one of the American commentators this morning, I think it was Tom Nichols who I adore, he was like, you know, anybody who's who gives up on America because we can't get guns under control has forgotten that we did actually get smoking under control, you know, and there was a time when everybody smoked. When I was a child in Australia, everybody smoked. All the yeah. adults smoked. Everyone smoked all the time. It was every venue you went into was full of smoke. You could smoke at the bank. Like it's inconceivable now. Huh? You smoke on a plane. Oh, I remember getting a, a flight to see my grandma in New Zealand when I was eight years old and we we were in the smoking section of the plane. They let an eight-year-old child sit in the in a smoking section of a plane like that was a normal thing. And to be perfectly honest, everybody can I speak from historical experience that the whole plane was the smoking section. Yeah. You can't. You can't just stop smoke air going from one end of the plane to the other. That's not a thing. I remember when I was a kid, we uh, we had a had a birthday party at Pizza Hut, which is you know uh, when you could physically go to Pizza Hut and have the or you could eat pizza bar, and there was a smoking and non smoking section, and it was literally divided by a piece of lattice work, as though lattice full of holes was stopping the smoke. The whole restaurant was full of smoke. Of course it was. Well, and this is the thing, you know, we adapted. And I re- I remember being in Europe, um, I was in Vienna the night before the indoor smoking ban came down and that was the party to end all parties. Can I tell you a Christmas party in Vienna the last night you were able to smoke indoors? And I have this visceral memory because I had to be on a flight at some ridiculous hour the next morning. This is, you know, yeah. in, in my somewhat wilder days, I believe is the term. And so I just stayed up all night partying on with these Austrians and then um, just, you know, caught the, like had a shower at the airport and got this plane back to Australia the next day. And then I remember getting off the off the plane, coming home and opening my suitcase. I just shoved all of my clothes from my party into yeah. this suitcase and this the aroma of like 300 smoking drunk Austrians just wafted over me and I knew that like, I would never smell anything like that again. It was like this last sort of moment but it, it was such a tangible visceral smell and yet look at this, it, it, it wouldn't even occur to me that people smoke indoors yeah. anywhere anymore. Like that's just not a thing. And that took activism and commitment and regulations. But, you know, my dad died of smoking-related lung cancer. My mother has cancer now. She was a product of that environment. She was a heavy smoker until she was 40, you know, and hopefully deaths like that and those the the, the manner of my father's death will not exist anymore because we did regulate, we did take it seriously and we were dealing with addiction. Like people are addicted Mm. to nicotine and yet we as a society found health and safety regulations in order to 
minimize the impact of that addiction, to create channels for recovery, to create safe spaces for other people around passive smoking, all those things. Like we do actually have the capacity as a society to keep ourselves safer. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about, as you say, you know, nicotine is addictive. Um, you know, there's nothing about uh, COVID that 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 uh, you will get addicted to uh, that makes you want to have it. No, um, no, it's a you don't. Terrible thing to have. Um, look, Van. You know, we've we've covered a lot of territory today. Uh, you you mentioned briefly the US and and we've talked we've touched on the US a couple of times today mostly in in the negative and frankly most of the news we're getting out of the US over the last month or so has been pretty negative but there has been some good news some good news to end the show this week from the US that I think is worth sharing with our listeners yeah Give us the good news, Ben. I know he finds these things for me so I don't despair. Um, This is very exciting because it's about undersea cavern preservation. Yes, it's the Hudson Canyon, which is 100 miles off the coast of New York and New Jersey. It's set to be made into a maritime park. And, you know, I wasn't even aware of this until I read this story, but Joe Biden has a 30-30 plan to protect 30% of America's land and territorial waters by the year 2030. Now, this canyon uh, is two and a half miles deep, so that's what, about six kilometers? Someone's going to correct me on that, I'm sure, uh, and seven and a half miles across. It is the deepest canyon off America's Atlantic coast, and it's home to just a wide variety of uh, sea creatures and uh, deep sea coral, sea turtles, uh, sperm whales, just incredible. I mean, imagine how big the canyon must be to uh, house the largest, one of the largest uh, creatures to ever be on the face of the earth. It's a pretty incredible uh, situation. Uh, so, yeah, that's the good news. It's from America and, uh, frankly, you know, I think we can take some heart in the fact that Biden has a 30-30 plan. Yeah, look, it is. And it's been kind of exciting to watch Tanya Plibersek, the new environment minister, go to the UN Oceans Conference uh, mm-hmm. this week and she's just been coming out with statement after statement uh, pledging support. Uh, there's a glider that she's uh, like adorable, fluffy little mammal thing that has uh, been moved onto the endangered list, which means that it gets increased protection. She's made the statement that the environment is back at the heart of Australian policymaking and these commitments from the new government about actually doing the work in the preservation space. You know, the, the context is that, you know, as you and I have said, you know, get involved whatever you can do, you know, do all the good you can in all the places you can, all the time you can, the maximum of your ability. And it like the grassroots campaign for, for environmental preservation and conservation, it matters and it is having an effect and the public policy conversation has changed and, you know, commitments to like Tony Plibersek has been talking about having an ocean-free Pacific and supporting international collaborative action to get uh, to get plastic. Sorry, did I say an ocean-free Pacific? Yeah, I, meant yeah, I wonder what you meant there, but you meant plastic-free Pacific. Plastic I have free. coronavirus and obviously the brain fog is descending. A plastic-free Pacific. Plastic-free right. Pacific Ocean and supporting collaborative international uh, action to get the horrible, awful plastic out of our oceans. This is awesome. This is all good news that this is happening. Yeah. Well, I think that that is a very positive, upbeat note for us to end the week on Wednesday. Now, of course, we always give a shout out to our cadre and extending the reach uh, listeners. Uh, who these are people who have uh, made a contribution to the week on Wednesday. Our extend the reach listeners contribute twenty dollars a month. Sorry, our cadre listeners contribute twenty dollars a month. Our Extend the Reach listeners contribute $10 a month. We also have a buck a week uh, supporters who give us a buck a week uh, and a whole range of one-off supporters as well. You can go to our supporter page. It's buymeacoffee.com. 
com slash work on Wednesday. Supporters do get the podcast emailed directly to them, and we like to try and throw in some extra links as well. And Cadre supporters uh, do get a video from me and Van, which is exclusive to them. So apologies if you're not a Cadre supporter, but this uh, the latest one is of us in our Star Wars uh, some of our Star Wars gear, which hopefully... Uh, yeah, which was an accident, by the way, that we were just accidentally in Star Wars gear, but we are big nerds and we love Star Wars, so I guess it wasn't that surprising. <laughs> so um, hopefully... Our but yeah, but you got to see it and, you know, if you weren't on the list, um, yeah, you didn't and you missed no. out on me dressed as Ahsoka Tano and Ben as Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is literally <laughs> how we get around our house. That's right. So... Look, we Van, have you got our cadre supporter list there? In front I do, of you? I do. Let's give it a red hot go. Um, doing these things interstate, always interesting. All right, our cadre. At Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, someone, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, Jenny Forster Seven, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson. No Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Atley Archer, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, Narunga Man, Jed Carney, John Sharpen, Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, Red, White and Blue Lou, Christine Cole, Stuart Mudden, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nye, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lupino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, uh, at Knott, at Didhams, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannum, Bill Collis, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, Gail Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliane and Andrew, Ivis Billet, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keith Addison, Lizid Tweddle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, at Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson and Renee McGee. That is our cadre and our Extending the Reach supporters. And uh, as always, a huge thank you and congratulations to all of our supporters because you continue to make the week on Wednesday an absolute smash hit. Uh, We continue to outperform so much of the Murdoch empire. And Van, you found a funny one recently about poor old Channel 10. Yeah, so Channel 10 has started a news breakfast show. I can't momentarily remember what it was called, but our podcast had more listeners than the launch of Channel 10's new breakfast show had viewers. So that makes us very excited that two open and proud democratic socialists have a bigger audience than a breakfast show on a commercial news network was kind of amazing. Um, uh, But also we are nearing a very important milestone, which is our half a million downloads is on the horizon, which is just absolutely incredible, especially in the Australian podcast market. So if you're listening to the show, if you're not a buy me a coffee person, that's okay. If you want to support the show, how about you encourage people to listen to it? Because I would absolutely love like the biggest bouquet of flowers I could get in my illness this week would be hitting the 500,000 download number because then we get a fancy badge to put on our podcast page and everybody will know that we are kings of the school um, if we get, uh, I think our target is uh, a couple more thousand listeners than usual and if we can do that this week I'll just be so excited. So please uh, promote the show, share it, encourage people to listen to what we do to get a taste of what we're doing. I'm always uh, so thrilled to meet people at literary events when I'm not too sick to physically attend them of people who say that they listen to the podcast and um, you know share our ideas and have discussions about the things that we bring up. It's awesome. Like it's awesome to think that you know, we're a, a conduit for a community of people who have values in common, who are, are fighting for like a, a fairer yeah. and more just and more kind society. We just, it just makes us feel like our work and our lives are worthwhile, really. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So don't forget to like, share, comment. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. Uh, we are even we even have uh, some content on Reddit occasionally as well when I remember to update that. 
Don't forget to listen to The Weekend Wrap on Sundays, uh, sometimes with me and Van, uh, but you'll always get some content there as well. Uh, Until then, hopefully I will see you soon, darling. Love you, Vanny. Oh, I love you too. Look after our cute little dog. As always. Bye. Bye.